Okay. Uh, yes, thank you for the invite, although um, I think you did in fact invite uh, one of our pastors and he passed it on to me, so um, maybe you've got the, uh, the seconds with me, but there we go. Um, but I do bring greetings from Emmanuel Church in Leamington Spa. Um, yes, it's a real um, privilege to bring those greetings from them. Um, particularly, I was talking this morning to Jan Price, who came here um, many years ago as Jan Angel, um, who happens to be my aunt as well. Um, so she has very fond memories of coming here. I don't know how long ago. A while ago, anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, at Emmanuel, we're, um, we've got the privilege, uh, joy of having uh, a baptismal service this evening, um, which I'm missing. So three of our young people are getting baptised, um, which is a real uh, joy. Um, so do pray for them thank you, and give thanks for that. Um, yeah, so uh, Anna and Jude and Liberty are getting baptised um, probably about now. Um, so pray for those uh, three young people, um, and some of those are going away to university soon as well. Um, one prayer point from Emmanuel is, uh, it sounds similar, um, we are outgrowing our building, or we have outgrown our building actually, we meet in the school in the morning, um, so it's been a prayer point for a long, long time, but we are looking for um, new premises, either a plot of land to build on or uh, a site big enough. So uh, if you are praying for Emmanuel, do pray for that in particular. We are going to be in Daniel 4 this evening, so if you can have that um, passage open, that would be really helpful. Um, I wonder, have you ever been trying to get a message across to somebody and, and they just don't get it? You know, Maybe uh, however hard you try and in however many different ways um, you try and explain it, or maybe even demonstrate it, they do not understand. Maybe like me, you're a, a teacher and that's your job day to day, to teach something that people never understand. Uh, I teach maths. So I'm quite used to that. Um, so maybe it's something, yeah, maybe I need to work harder on that. Or maybe you're a parent and you uh, are looking to impart something really important to your children and you just don't get it. It might even be in a Bible study setting and you've got something really insightful to say about a passage. Uh, and however hard you try and explain it and try and get your point across, people just get at the wrong end of the stick um, and they just don't get it. It can be really frustrating, can't it? And you've got something to say, and people just don't understand. And I imagine that's how Daniel and his friends felt with King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, So far in the book of Daniel, um, Nebuchadnezzar has been shown multiple times that God is sovereign, that he rules, and even over the most powerful of kings. And yet he's not understood it yet. In chapter 1, he was presented with Daniel and his three friends who refused to eat the king's food, but appeared healthier than the rest of them. He didn't get it. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has his first dream, and the pagan astrologers and magicians and enchanters cannot interpret it. But Daniel's God is the revealer of mysteries, and he does interpret it. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't understand That God is sovereign. And then in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar puts himself in the firing line when he says that no God can save Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from his hands. But as they're thrown into the fiery furnace, the fire does not hurt them and they come out unscathed. And yet he still doesn't get it. There are glimmers of hope uh, when he says in chapter 2, 
Truly, your God is the God of gods. And then in chapter 3, he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he never, up to this point, owns the God of heaven as his own God. He doesn't get it. What will it take for Nebuchadnezzar to finally realize that Yahweh is the one true sovereign God? What will it take? How are they going to have to explain it to him? Well, in the passage we're looking at tonight, as we've just had read, Nebuchadnezzar is finally brought to his knees before the Most High God and finally gives him the praise that he is due. It's written very differently to the rest of the book so far. It's actually a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar to his empire. And he start, right at the start of the letter, he gives his purpose for writing. It's, he says, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High has performed for me. Nebuchadnezzar's purpose in writing is to tell the whole empire, the whole known world uh, at that time, of the greatness of the Most High. He wants to tell the known world about the Most High's eternal kingdom and his dominion that endures from generation to generation. There appears to have finally been a heart change, isn't there? Finally, he's maybe got who this God is. It's no longer decrees of threats to anyone who speaks badly of the Most High, but it's an exhortation to worship him as Nebuchadnezzar now does. He then goes on to tell the story of how the Most High has humbled him to a point where he now willingly bows the knee in worship. So tonight, as we look through Daniel 4, we're going to have four lessons for us from Nebuchadnezzar, uh, one from each stage of the narrative, and then three things that Nebuchadnezzar has learnt about the Most High and the lessons that we can learn too. So the first stage, uh, first section, I've called it the situation that is dangerous, the situation that is dangerous, and it's verses 4 through to 18, the situation that is dangerous. And the lesson we can learn is, do not strive for worldly contentment. Instead, strive for godliness with contentment. Do not strive for worldly contentment. Instead, strive for godliness with contentment. As Nebuchadnezzar starts the account of his humiliation and subsequent restoration, he deliberately starts by setting the scene. Verse 4, he says, he is at home in his palace, contented and prosperous. He is comfortable and thriving. Uh, and part of this setting of the scene is, is to emphasize the magnitude of the humbling that is soon to come. But it's also there as a warning. Nebuchadnezzar could look around him at the comfort and wealth that he'd accumulated throughout his reign, at his military victories, and now the peace that he enjoys, and marvel at his own achievements. He'd become a proud man. His great wealth and accomplishments had made him proud. His whole life would have been building towards this point. We can't be sure, but commentators seem to think that this episode happened towards the end of his life. Now, he's fought all his battles, he's won his victories, he's built up his wealth, he's built his own majestic city, Babylon. He has all that he wants, and he's finally content. Friends, that's a dangerous position to be in, isn't it? Because when we are content and prosperous with all that we have, we will stop trusting in God for all that we need. 
It's a dangerous situation to be in. And even as he starts to recount his dream to Daniel, even that is starting to fuel his pride, isn't it? Look how the tree is described. It's described as large and strong, visible to the ends of the earth, beautiful and abundant. This tree, which he realizes represents himself, is impressive in every way to look at. And so is he. He's the wealthiest man, the most powerful man in the world. And he knows it. And he's proud. We may not have the wealth and the power of Nebuchadnezzar, but the danger is just as real today, isn't it? Pride is just as big a problem in our day as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. Let me give you an example if you're struggling to think about it. I wonder if you ever worked hard, uh, maybe to provide for your family or your uh, Maybe it's just yourself. And maybe you've worked this hard and you can afford a new home or a new house or maybe some luxury. Maybe it's and you've, you're looking forward to going on a, a special holiday this summer. And when you finally get this house or home, whatever it is, you sit back and you think, ah, oh, I've earned this. I deserve this. Well, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He's contented and prosperous. And he is taking the glory due to God and pouring it on himself. Instead, we should say, thank you, Lord, for blessing me with these good things. But we don't, do we? We say, I deserve that. I've earned it. It's pride. And it's a dangerous situation to be in. You know, some things that we strive for, the things I've just listed, aren't bad things in themselves. But the problem is that for Nebuchadnezzar, They've become the foundation on which he built his life. And they are unsteady, aren't they? The contrast between verse 4 and 5 is stark. He goes from being contented and prosperous, verse 4, to afraid and terrified in verse 5, in the space of a night. All because what he's been striving for and building his life on is now under threat. His whole life is going to crumble down around him because he has nothing to fall back on. Friends, when our contentment rests on the shaky foundations of worldly pleasures, then as our situation changes, and it will, we will crumble because we have nothing to base our hope on. But if our contentment rests on the sure foundation of the Most High God, then no circumstance can shake that because God is unchanging. So instead of striving for worldly pleasures, strive for godliness with contentment. The second section I've called uh, the sermon that is direct, and it's from verses 19 through to 27. The sermon that is direct. And the lesson is, do not harden your heart to the challenge of God's word. Instead, be ready to be changed by it. Do not harden your heart to the challenge of God's word. Instead, be ready to be changed by it. Daniel is the last wise man on the scene. After all the others were unable to explain the dream to the king again. As the king explains the dream to Daniel, he becomes uneasy. He's deeply troubled by the meaning of this dream, so much so that he becomes speechless speechless for a time. Daniel had true compassion for the king. He did not want to deliver the message that God had for him. He wished it instead on the king's enemies, didn't he? Um, Verse 19, uh, and it's meaning on your adversaries. If only the dream was about somebody else. He had compassion for the king. Daniel's message is not 
an easy one to deliver, is it? Not at all. He takes no delight in it. And we as Christians have to be the bearers of a hard message. The message that God, there is a God in heaven who demands holiness, but a holiness that we can never achieve. And because we fall short of that standard, we deserve to be divinely judged. That is a hard message. That is not an easy message to, message to deliver to anyone. But Daniel's genuine compassion here is a great example. I wonder if we sometimes take delight in delivering the message of sin. It's not an easy message. We should have compassion as we talk about sin to those who are lost. But I'm sure that the compassion that Daniel has for the king gives him an opportunity to be direct and give it a direct challenge at the end of his interpretation. Despite being uneasy about the message, Daniel continues and he gives the king the interpretation. Look how direct he is. He does not beat around the bush at all. He gets straight to the point. Verse 22. You, O king, are the tree. It has echoes of Nathan with uh, David uh, and ba- with the sin in, with Bathsheba and Uriah. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, David says to, uh, sorry, Nathan says to David, you are the man. And in that breath, David is broken as he realizes his sin. Nebuchadnezzar has it confirmed what he knew all along, that the dream is about him. You are the tree. But Daniel continues. He doesn't hold back. He reminds him time and again that the meaning of the dream is one of judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 25. This drives it home uh, particularly strongly. Verse 25. You will be driven away from people and will, eat, um, and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Daniel could not be clearer. Judgment from God was coming to Nebuchadnezzar. One of my favourite um, films, watch it at Christmas time, is The Muppets Christmas Carol. Um, and I'm sure it's the same in the book, um, but I don't know the book very well, I know the film. Um, but if you don't know the story, Ebenezer Scrooge, the main character, is a harsh man who um, has made himself rich by uh, by capitalising on the misfortunes of the poor. And one Christmas, Scrooge is uh, visited by three um, spirits, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and um, Christmas yet to come. And as uh, Scrooge is with the last spirit, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, he is brought to a graveyard. Scrooge's torrid night is nearly at an end, but there is one more thing he needs to see. And the spirit lifts up his hand and points to a gravestone. Scrooge knows full full well whose name is going to be written on that stone. But he does everything he can to try and avoid the truth. First of all, he goes to another stone. I think, is it this one? But unmoved, the spirit keeps pointing at the stone. And as Scrooge wipes away the the snow from the stone to reveal the name, he reads the name he knew would be there, Ebenezer Scrooge. And he weeps. And Nebuchadnezzar had the same feeling. He knew what the dream meant. He knew it was about him. But he needed someone to tell him for sure. 
Nebuchadnezzar had to take the consequences for his sin. And ladies and gentlemen, it is the same for us. Many of you would have sat in this church or other churches many times. Many of you would have heard God's word preached many, many times. You know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, like Scrooge, you are trying to avoid the truth that that includes you too. Friends, may I plead with you that if, it is, if that is you this evening, would you wipe away the snow, as it were, from the gravestone and see that your name is on that list as well? You are included in that all. Do not try and keep, a, uh, do not keep trying to avoid the truth of God's word. Do not keep hardening your heart to it. Because the wonderful thing about Daniel's sermon is that it doesn't end there. He goes on to offer a possible way out. He carries on being direct, but this time tells Nebuchadnezzar how he should respond. Verse 27. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Daniel says to the king, you must repent and plead forgiveness from the Most High. Have you truly repented of your sin and sought the forgiveness that comes only through the Lord Jesus? Because although we deserve the same judgment that Nebuchadnezzar faced, it is Christ, God's Son, who takes it. He's the one who drank every last drop of the cup of God's wrath so that we can go free, as we will remember later as we meet around the Lord's table. Do not harden your heart to the challenge of God's word. If you are, do not do it. continue to do it. Repent now and come to Christ for forgiveness. That's the sermon that is direct. The third section I've called the sin that is not dealt with. The sin that is not dealt with. And it's verses 28 through to 33. And the lesson here is do not leave sin unrepented, as we've spoken about already. Instead, keep short accounts with the Lord. Daniel has just delivered one of the most direct sermons you could possibly hear or read. And Nebuchadnezzar could have no doubt that it was directed at him. It's possible he was the only one in the room. It was definitely directed at Nebuchadnezzar. And yet as the king kind of left the church hall and grabbed his cup of tea, he forgot all about it. He completely forgets what he's just heard. And even if Nebuchadnezzar at the time was made to think, and he feel uncomfortable and felt in need of change, no heart change was seen. Because 12 months later, he is still as proud as ever. God is patient with him. He gives Nebuchadnezzar a whole year to repent and change. And yet the longer it goes on, the more proud Nebuchadnezzar becomes. The sin confronted in the interpretation has not been dealt with. And he becomes more proud. Maybe it's because the judgment wasn't imminent. It didn't come straight away. And Nebuchadnezzar sort of brushed it off and thought, oh, I was just a dream. And Daniel's made up the interpretation. Maybe it was that. But whatever it was, Dan, then Nebuchadnezzar has not dealt with the sin. And so 12 months later, we are back to where we started. At Nebuchadnezzar's palace. But this time we're on the roof. Again, much like David when he sinned with Bathsheba, started on the roof. And as Nebuchadnezzar stands on his roof and surveys uh, the scene, he proclaims, aren't I great? Verse 30, he said, 
Is not this the great Babylon? I have built it as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. He is as proud as ever. There is no heart change. He still has no room for the most high God. Everything is for the glory of his majesty, not for the glory of God. But after this latest outburst of pride, God finally brings judgment on him. He says, even as the words were on his lips, the judgment comes and it is delivered in an instant. It is now too late for Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sin and avoid this terrible judgment. Suddenly he becomes mad. He became like the animals of the field. Some say the condition is um, called boanthropy, um, and it could well be where the pa- patient believes that he or she is a cow. Um, and the condition is rare, but it, it is still present today. But whether or not that is what Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted with, that's not the point. The thing that we need to see here is that God's judgment is sudden and serious. God's judgment is sudden and serious. Nebuchadnezzar had lived with unrepented sin and it resulted in God's judgment. Friends, can I ask, and I say this to myself as well, when was the last time that you got on your knees and said sorry for the sins of that day and pleaded for forgiveness from uh, the God of heaven? And as I said, I'm speaking to myself here as well, but it should be a daily habit. Are we aware of our sin And when we're aware of our sin, are we confessing it and are seeking forgiveness? And again, for those of you who have never repented of your sin and put your trust in the Lord Jesus, how long will you wait? Nebuchadnezzar waited a year and he still didn't do it. Will you wait a day? A month? Will you wait a year? And don't even wait another hour. God is patient with us. But one day it will be too late to do anything. 2 Peter 3 verses 9 and 10 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient. He wants us to come to repentance. But then it goes on, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief when we're not expecting it. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. One day, friends, it will be too late. Do not wait another hour. Do not wait another minute. Why not pray now and confess your sin to the Most High and ask him to forgive you through Christ? He promises that he will. Don't leave sin unrepented. And then the last section, I've called it the salvation that is delivered. And it's verses 34 through to 37, the salvation that is delivered. And the lesson is that God is worthy of all praise because he alone can save. The chapter ends in the same way it started. Nebuchadnezzar praising God for his wonderful works in his life. Nebuchadnezzar did finally raise his eyes toward heaven. His sanity was restored. And he did what all truly sane people do. He praised the Most High. 
You know, the biggest miracle in this chapter is not the interpretation of the dream. It's not the way that Nebuchadnezzar was suddenly made mad or even suddenly made sane. No, the biggest miracle is that the proud Nebuchadnezzar finally was willingly bow, has, will, has willingly bowed the knee in worship of the God whose dominion is an eternal dominion and whose kingdom endures from generation to generation. Friends, that is the biggest miracle, that proud Nebuchadnezzar could come to a point where he is worshipping the God of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar is miraculously saved. And as we close, three things that Nebuchadnezzar and we can learn about the Most High. First thing is this. The Most High is sovereign over all and worthy of our utmost praise. He is sovereign over all and worthy of our utmost praise. This is the main message of the dream. It's repeated three times in the chapter. And it was finally this point that Nebuchadnezzar understood uh, when he raised his eyes towards heaven. Verse 17, the whole purpose of the humbling says, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all, over all kingdoms on earth, and give them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest people. The whole point was so that Nebuchadnezzar and others would see that God is sovereign. And it's repeated in verse 25 and verse 32 as well, more or less the exact same words. God's message was that Nebuchadnezzar was not the ruler of the world, as he liked to think of himself. God's message was that he is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who sets up kings and brings down kingdoms. Even in Daniel's interpretation, he gives a hint of this, as he says that Nebuchadnezzar's dominion extends only to distant parts of the earth. Compare this with God's kingdom that is eternal and endures forever. God's kingdom is far greater than any other kingdom. God is sovereign over kingdoms. He was sovereign then and he is sovereign now. And I hope that encourages you today as we see uh, the political turmoil in this world, as you look at Russia and Ukraine, as we look in our country and the turmoil in our country. It is the Most High who is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. There is not a kingdom that is not under God's control. And there is not a ruler who cannot be dethroned overnight if God wills it. And that should drive us to praise him. So the Most High is sovereign over all. World rulers, including who our next prime minister is going to be, and Vladimir Putin, as well as situations in our lives. He's sovereign in our lives too. And he is worthy of our utmost praise. The second lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learnt was that the Most High provides us with all that we have, from the smallest thing to the greatest, from sanity to splendour. God could have stripped Nebuchadnezzar of all his wealth and prosperity, and that might have seemed punishment enough for him. But Nebuchadnezzar had to learn one other thing. God provides us with every good thing, including our sanity. The fact that the madness came on Nebuchadnezzar so suddenly must have shown him that God was even in control of how his mind works. I love the fact that there's very little detail of how Nebuchadnezzar was driven from his kingdom and then restored. It just says that he was. Why is that? Well, I think it's because, so that we're not tempted, not even tempted to think that there were people 
involved in the um, humiliation and restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. It was all of God. He is the one who gives us our sanity. He's the one who gives us our splendor. It was God who took all away from him and then restored everything to him. And as Nebuchadnezzar is restored, what's the first thing that comes back? It's his sanity. Something that for the whole of his life he would have taken for granted. God reminds him that every good gift, good, every good and every perfect gift is from above. Nebuchadnezzar's response to his sanity being restored was to honour and glorify the Most High. And that should be the same for us as well. How often do we thank him for the small things that he so readily provides for us? But God goes on to bless Nebuchadnezzar even more greatly. Look what it says in uh, verse 36. At that same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour would return to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. So God not only restores the small things, his sanity, but he restores the splendour. He is so gracious to Nebuchadnezzar. But this time, he's got all his kingdom back, but this time he is able to praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven rather than the king of Babylon, who he praised and exalted and glorified before. So God is the giver of all good things. And then lastly, the last thing that Nebuchadnezzar learnt was that the Most High humbles those who do not bow the knee. Nebuchadnezzar finishes the account with the recognition that God humbles the proud, as happened to him. End of verse 37. I'll read the, whole, read the whole of verse 37. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And whether or not the proud are humbled on earth, there will be a day when, as Philippians 2 puts it, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And who will we be bowing to? The Lord Jesus. The one who was not proud. The one who did not need to be humbled by God. But was willing that even though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. We bow to Jesus, who willingly humbled himself so that we could be forgiven. He is the one we bow to, and he is the one who is worthy of our praise. So let's join Nebuchadnezzar in his song of praise as we sing uh, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to uh, tell the known world of the great and wonderful works of the Lord. And let's sing of those great works.